Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Today, we begin a brand new season of the Men's Breakfast, entitled From Here to There, Lessons from the Israelites' Journey in the Wilderness. Throughout this year together, as we learn from God's people in the desert, we will see how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. Our journey begins in the book of Exodus, so open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, And let's prepare our hearts to learn from God's Word together. Tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary. We usually think of anniversaries as happy things. This is not a happy anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11th of 2001. And we, we remember where we were, most of us, exactly on that day. And scenes from New York from Arlington, Virginia, just up the road at the Pentagon in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, scenes from 20 years ago tomorrow. And in light of those events, maybe you, just like I was on that particular day in the days that followed, were asking some questions about what was going on. Questions like, where is God in the midst of this? Uh, What will happen next? Where are we going and where are we now? It was a day of lots of question asking. And maybe the question that we could ask ourselves coming from that day and even any day that we are walking this earth is, why are we here? Which I think is an important question to ask and answer. And even for this very space, why are we here meeting as a group of men, ridiculous as it may seem, getting up before the sun is up to come to a place like this? Maybe some people would say, you're crazy, and they would partially be right. (laughs) But I think as men who desire to walk in the path of Jesus, at least that's my prayer for all of us, that we are here for the following reasons. To know Jesus more fully, and maybe for you, this will be for the first time, to encounter the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and walked this earth so that we might have life in him. Uh, We also want to grow in Jesus more deeply, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the man who is the Son of God and Savior of the world. And finally, to show Jesus more faithfully as we think about being his disciples and demonstrating his grace and truth to the world, the watching world that needs to see that our Redeemer lives. So the theme that we will focus on for this next, I'll say year, but it's really nine months, is that the journey we are on points us to Jesus. And that is the journey that we will be examining as we look at and get into God's Word at the history of a very interesting group of people known as the Israelites. The Israelites being the descendants of a man named Abraham. And Abraham's going to be a very important part of all that we do as we look a little bit at what went on in history. Um, and what God promised to that man, Abraham, and all of his offspring that he would do for him, and what he would do for all the nations of the world through him, which also points us to Jesus Christ. One of my favorite things to do is to be with a group of men in the morning like this, getting into God's word. And so I am grateful that we can do this together and think about how this journey of this group of men and women and children, numbering maybe several million from many thousand years ago, points us to Jesus Christ. So, 
Our series for the next nine months is From Here to There, Lessons from the Israelites' Journeys in the Wilderness. And we begin this week with an introduction from here to there, where are we going? And we'll be looking at Exodus chapters 1 and 2, some selected portions from that. So open your Bible or fire up your smart device to your Bible app, and we'll be looking at Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And um, just so you know, we are going to be journeying with the Israelites this entire time. We will start in Exodus today, navigate through Exodus. We'll touch upon Leviticus. We'll look at Numbers, Deuteronomy. And by the end, on June 10th, Lord willing, and the creed on rise, we are going to be in Joshua chapter 1 as we look at this journey. So let's define the journey a little bit and think about where we are going. Now, maybe if you study the, um, the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness, at times like me, you feel that it's more like trying to figure out, like these guys are, are wondering exactly where was Egypt and where are we going and where are we? Uh, oftentimes the journey seems confusing to me, but we're going to try to make some sense of it. Like any road trip, though, in any good trip, you're going to need what to be successful? A map. That's right. And if for gentlemen who are here for the first time, we love maps here at the men's breakfast. I feel like uh, life is not complete without a good map. Now, I tried to find a good one. If you think you can find a better one and send it to me, you can you can do that. Whoa, Whoa I know. There's a map. Shocking. We're having a map at the men's breakfast. But I feel like as, as men, we're very uh, visually and directionally oriented, at least we pretend to be, and play that confident role until our wife says, you need to turn here or you need to look at the map. Um, I am never ashamed to look at the map, by the way. I'm never ashamed to go into a store in and, and Home Depot, for example, and look for the orange apron because I, I just want help. And I'm, I don't know, finally, maybe I'm at the point in my life where I realize how much I need it. Uh, but I do love maps. And this is what the journey generally is going to look like. You can see uh, you have on the left, you have Egypt. Whoa, do you need to see that again? Whoa, you have Egypt. That is where the Israelites are beginning their journey. That journey is going to conclude in Canaan, which is, which is called Israel. And that's the Mediterranean Sea. You can see there that gray part at the top of the map. And this is sort of what the journey looks like. Be ready. Be amazed. They sort of do that, as best we can tell, and sort of swoop down that wilderness in Sinai and back up. And it takes 40 years. So we're hoping to cover 40 years in almost 40 weeks. Um, and this is what the, you can think of the, the theme for the journey. The origination or the starting point is incarceration. This is a group of people that is enslaved to the people and the kingdom and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And the goal and the destination is emancipation from that, freedom from that bondage. But what happens in between is really the key and the key for us. And that is that the navigation through and the purpose of that is transformation. So that this group of people, almost two million in number, 
needed to be whittled down and prepared to be the people that God wanted them to be in order to inherit this land that he promised to their forefather Abraham several hundred years before. We have this travelogue of this group of people, and this travelogue points us to the ultimate cartographer, who is the Lord God, who is guiding them the whole way. Did you like that kind of reference to maps that I threw in there? Um, And so, again, the overview for our journey is that the origination is incarceration. The destination is emancipation and freedom. But the navigation in between is the transformation that happens in their lives on the journey. And what we see is that our lives are very much the same. We were not enslaved in Egypt, but we were enslaved to sin. And we have a promised land that God is guiding us by his grace towards, which is called the new heavens and the new earth in and through his per, his son, uh, the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus himself. How we navigate through this journey, because we're all going through something difficult, and the past 18 months have sort of felt like a wilderness journey for some of us. I know at times it has for me. And the question is, how are we navigating through this? And are we going to allow ourselves to grow through the experience or shrivel up? Maybe a secondary text to the scriptures for our journey is one that I can recommend. It's called The Land Between by an author named Jeff Mannion. The subtitle is Finding God in Difficult Transitions. And he has this to say about our own journey, like the Israelites in this land between being in bondage and freedom. He writes, The land between is prime real estate for faith transformation. The wilderness where faith can thrive is the very desert where it can dry up and die if we are not watchful. God intends for us to emerge from this land radically reshaped, but the process of transformational growth will not occur automatically. Our response to God in the land between is what will determine whether our journey through this desert will result in deep positive growth or spiritual decline. Stated another way, As we look at this current journey that we're on, we can either allow the circumstances to make us bitter, or we can, through Christ, allow those circumstances to make us better. And I think we know that God's desire for us as men is that we would be better through the transforming work of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. So my prayer is that through this journey, we will be pointed to Jesus. So let's return to the map as we get ready to look at our text. Again, Egypt is where we begin. And just for some context on that, uh, the Israelites came to Egypt when Joseph, who was one of the sons of Jacob, who was renamed Israel, Joseph was in Egypt. And his family settled in Egypt at about 70 persons in number. And a lot of time had passed, about 430 years. And that number had grown from 70 to, some scholars say, 2 million people. That is quite, uh, quite profound. And what we find as we look at this situation is that in Exodus 1 and 2, what we'll see is that we, we start with Pharaoh's oppression, then we'll look at Moses' birth, and finally God's response. So starting with Pharaoh's oppression, We're going to read from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. 
Again, thinking about this context, that Joseph at one point, 430 years before, had been a prominent leader in the kingdom of Egypt and had been essentially raised to the level of vice president, second only to Pharaoh, who is the king. But now we read that the situation has changed over the years. In verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. When we read a new king arose, some scholars believe this means a new dynasty, possibly the 18th dynasty of the land and pharaohs of Egypt. Um, this could have been the pharaoh Ahmos, or it could have been Tutmos I. It's a little hard to get precise on some of the, the dating when we get back this far. Um, but as best we can tell, this was somewhere around 1570 B.C., and this new dynasty and this new kingdom begins. And what we find is that this new king knew not Joseph. And he also knew not the Lord. As a result of the Israelites' growth in numbers, they had become a threat to the Pharaoh in his mind. Because the concern was that they might rise up at any point and join an enemy and defeat the Egyptians. So verse 9 continues, And he, this is the new king, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Interestingly, that word shrewdly in the Hebrew text means wisdom or wisely. Ironically, Pharaoh, the king, wanted to deal wisely with this great population of people. Unfortunately, he didn't read Proverbs 9.10, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of chakam, which is wisdom, the same word. And so what does he decide to do? Therefore, they set taskmaster, taskmasters, um, also translated princes of work, to be set over the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh. Interestingly, this word Pharaoh here, this is the first time that this word is used to describe the king of Egypt in the Hebrew text. It literally means great house. So the idea was that this is a king over a great house or a great dynasty. And they built for Pharaoh store cities of Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They hated them. They were in fear of them. Now, what's interesting is this sounds like a very dire situation, and it was. But God promised that this was going to happen. God said even to Abraham, these some 430, or even more than that, Years before, God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, these following words. The Lord said to Abram, who later became Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So I'm always interested when the Bible begins putting somewhat of a time frame, and then that time frame is fulfilled. We should not be surprised that God's word was fulfilled and came true. Indeed, Abraham's offspring were afflicted for centuries under the Egyptians. Then we get to verses 13 and 14, which amplifies and intensifies the burden that these Israelites were experiencing. 
So they, that is the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Indeed, this was incarceration. This was enslavement. The people of Israel were in a difficult situation. And it doesn't get any better. We read on, which we won't touch upon today, that Pharaoh doubles down on his desire to eliminate these people, or at least um, whittle down their population. And so he orders that their male babies be thrown into the Nile River so that they might, as a people, not have the ability to really continue on and flourish. It's gotten worse. Enter one of the most famous history figures, historical figures from the Old Testament, a man named Moses. And this is all, guys, part of God's plan to redeem his people and bring them out. So we turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we find about this time, as best we can tell, maybe 1526 B.C., we read about what happens in the life of God's people in the following words in Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Uh, This man is not named until later. His name is Amram, and his wife is Jochebed. And they're from the Levitical tribe, which was traditionally the tribe where the priestly class came from in uh, the Old Testament, in God's people's life, in the the Israelites' lives. Uh, The priests, as well as the priestly assistants known as the Levites. So what we find already is that Moses, in some way, and his brother Aaron, would play a priestly role in the lives of the Israelites. And Moses' story begins in the midst of adversity. He's born into adversity and challenge and difficulty. But it's a miraculous story, one of many in the scriptures of a miraculous birth and deliverance. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was fine, a fine child, the word there is tov, it's good. He was a a good child and good-looking, much like Max. Um, She hid him for three months. So somehow, even though they were told, throw your babies in the Nile, they were able to uh, protect him. God's provision protected him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Interestingly, this is the same exact word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 for the ark. So when you read the ark in Genesis 6 and 7 that Noah got on, and you read now this basket that Moses got in and was placed in, you see that in two separate times, God delivered a man uh, to really be his servant through something made of some kind of material delivered through the water. And this basket was made of bulrushes and daubed with bitumen and pitch. There's some kind of a tar that was put around the outside of it so it wouldn't leak. I can imagine Moses' mom probably put a few extra layers of bitumen and pitch on this basket. And what was going through her mind as she was covering it, knowing that she was going to need to place her son in this basket? It's fascinating. Then she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So what we see here, guys, is that Moses' mother actually obeyed what Pharaoh had commanded, right? She put her child in the Nile River. But it just looked a little bit different. And she was trusting that the Lord would somehow provide and protect for her son. Amazingly, God did just that. 
And his sister, that is Moses' sister Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Uh, There is a scholarship that demonstrates that this young woman, Pharaoh's daughter, who came to bathe by the river, which was common, the Nile was considered a sacred source of cleansing. Um, One of the women who eventually ruled and reigned in Egypt was uh, Queen Hatshepsut. I just like saying her name. Can you say Hatshepsut? That's close enough. But she was actually a female pharaoh, really one of the only female pharaohs in Egypt. And uh, dates point to the fact that this really could have been Queen Hatshepsut. She's buried in this great memorial burial place in Luxor in Egypt. Some of you may have even been there. But this could have been Hatshepsut, who was bathing Pharaoh's daughter in, in the Nile. And this is what happens. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women. And she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She probably knew that because he was circumcised. And uh, for this reason, we, um, we see that pity, which was, which was seen as a weakness back in ancient times, was actually a source of strength. She takes pity on this child. Then, amazingly, verse 7, Then his sister, that is Moses' sister Miriam, who happens to be there, says to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a young nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. This is Moses' own mother who just sent him off. (laughs) Is now called back. They're reunited. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She'll be paid for this. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The Hebrew word named Moshe means to draw out. We see that this was prophetically looking forward to Moses' own role as the leader of God's people because just as Moses was drawn out of the water, So God would use Moses to draw God's people out of Egypt through another body of water 80 years later in the Red Sea. The situation doesn't improve for Moses in a sense. He is adopted into Egyptian royalty. He has a place in the palace of Pharaoh. And then one day he goes and he sees one of uh, the Egyptian taskmasters beating a Hebrew servant or slave. Moses decides to take matters into his own hands, and he ends up beating the Egyptian taskmaster and killing him and burying him. The next day, he sees uh, two of his Hebrew brethren arguing, and he tries to intercede, and they say, what, are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian servant? And Moses realizes it's no secret what he's done. He flees to the wilderness of Midian, where he would be for 40 years. When he first gets there, he sees some women going to a well to draw water, and there are some evil shepherds who are persecuting them, and Moses spares them from these evil shepherds. We get the sense that Moses was probably pretty strong in his youth, and um, he actually gets a wife out of it. A man named Jethro says, hey, thanks for saving my daughters. You can have one of them. So uh, it's kind of an up and down period for Moses. But he ends up being in Midian for 40 years. In the meantime, 
we go to the end of Exodus chapter 2, and we find some of the most meaningful words that I think we find in the entire Old Testament, which is God's response to this dilemma that his people are in. So I will read, and this is a hinge, by the way, this Hinge meaning if you read the Bible, you have a hinge verse, which it's like a door hinge. It swings back and looks back to what's just happened, and it swings forward to what's coming and gives a preview for what is about to happen. But we read these words in verses 23 and 20 through 25 as God responds. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. I take this to be a pharaoh, Tutmose III, but some debate about this. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. Uh, the word groaned is, is pain that you would feel as would be later, as if your arms are broken and you're groaning in pain. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And here are some of the most endearing verses of the Bible to me, verses 24 and 25. Notice how many times the term God is repeated. It's repeated four times. And we begin to see some personification of the Lord as he is intimately involved in the life and the plight of his people. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. Uh, That word for heard, Shema, uh, which is a word that's often used. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema, God heard their groaning. And God remembered Zakar, their covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Not that God had forgotten, because God does not forget. He knows all. But he took that moment to act in his timing and his sovereignty based off of the promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And that leads us to one of the most important sections of Scripture. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, you should highlight, notate that this is a significant portion. Of course, all the Bible is important. But Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is significant because we read these following words that God promised to Abram or Abraham many years before. Go from your country and your, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the initial language of what is called the Abrahamic covenant. That Abraham would have a, a many descendants. That happened. And that he would be in a land one day. The Israelites were in the land for a time, but now they were in Egypt. And their whole journey is to get them back to that land that God promised they would have. But here are the important verses for the situation. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. If you know anything about Moses' interactions with Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, the plagues are coming because God will curse those who dishonor the descendants of Abraham. And God remembered that promise, and he will act on it very soon. Next we read in verses 24, uh, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
That's how the verse ends. The chapter ends. God knew. The word in Hebrew for knew is yada, which is a term that's used for an intimate knowing. Like when man and woman, Adam and Eve, the man knew his wife and she conceived, she had a child. It's an intimate union. It's an intimate term of God being so intimately acquainted with his people. He knows them and he knows their struggle and he will indeed take action. The New English Translation Study Bible has this note on this verse, on these verses. These verses emphasize God's sympathy and compassion for the people. God is near to those in need. In fact, the deliverer had already been chosen. It is important to note that at this point, the repetition of the word God is four times. The fourfold repetition of God in verses 24 and 25 is unusual and draws attention to the statements about his attention to Israel's plight. So as we conclude, what can we take for application from Exodus 1 and 2? The lessons are many, but here are two I have proposed for us today. One is we can cry out to God in our groaning. Again, that word for groaning used of the the utterance you make when it's as if your arms have been broken and you're writhing in pain. And maybe the past 18 months have felt like a season of groaning to you. At times they have to me. Maybe the past 18 years, for one reason or another, have felt like a time of groaning. But we can cry out to the God, the God who hears, the God who remembers, the God who sees, and the God who knows what we are going through. He is a God who invites us to come to Him honestly and to know that He is faithful to the promises He has made to His people. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, those promises are infinite and God will be faithful to them. It's who he is. The second point of application is that God supernaturally provides the way of deliverance. God's plans will not be stopped. God has people put in place to accomplish his purposes, his purposes to redeem, his purposes to deliver. And that's why we have to remember that The journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus. Because just as Moses had been prepared to deliver God's people from enslavement to Egypt, Jesus Christ was also born into adversity to a bloodthirsty king who wanted his life and grew up to become the man who would walk this earth, who is still the Messiah, who would bring us from a land of slavery to sin through transformation, through faith in him, to a promised land, new heavens, and the new earth. And here is Jesus' incredible invitation to enjoy the freedom that he alone can offer. And when I say freedom, I'm not talking about the the blessed freedom that we enjoy uh, in this country. I'm talking about a deeper freedom that Jesus Christ invites us to experience. And he invites us through these words, among many other passages in John chapter 8, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, and and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's interesting. If you go to the University of Virginia on Old Cabell Hall, which is opposite of the rotunda on the long across the lawn in Greek is John 832. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
It's applied there, of course, to a scholastic idea of truth. And I can't help every time I see it to know there's a deeper truth. If only Thomas Jefferson really knew it. That that is the truth that truly sets free. It's freedom in Christ. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What an incredible invitation that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to any who will come to him by faith and find forgiveness and freedom in his name. Remembering that our origination is incarceration, slavery to sin. The destination is emancipation, freedom from that, and ultimately the great promised land, new heavens and the new earth, just as the Israelites look forward to returning to their promised land. The navigation is indeed transformation. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.